You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. And welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee, and with me, yet again, my co-hostess with the mostest, Paul Doroshenko. Proud to be here with you, Kyla. Remote. Even though we're not together in the same location yeah. this week. This whole pandemic is making the uh, the recording of this podcast much more difficult. Well, we're so busy. That's the biggest problem, so is finding time. Busy. I had projects that I had planned for today and I went in hoping I'd you know set time aside to work on those things Mm -hmm. and I just ended up with client calls new clients new work non-stop so that's the way it goes it's um it seems to me as the pandemic's coming to an end that we are busier than we've ever been yeah, I, it, it does feel that way. But then at the same time, you know, I look at how many IRPs are being issued and it seems like there are fewer, but it is March and there's always kind of that little springtime lull. But, you, but you've noticed those numbers of violation ticket hearing date letters that have been coming in from the uh, violation it, ticket center in the last little while and we're getting like 15 a day scheduled trials over the summer between now and basically the end of September um, traffic ticket trials. So it is nonstop. I'm also getting calls about things, investigations that happened like seven, eight months ago where the police are just now getting to it because of the pandemic. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's an interesting time. It's an interesting time to be a lawyer. And there's no shortage of work right now. That's for sure. Speaking of the pandemic and interesting times to be a lawyer, I thought we would touch on something that doesn't immediately relate to driving law, but I'm going to tangentially connect it. Um, As you know, courts were shut down for a brief period from mid-March last year to mid-May last year. June, really, before they started to get back up, yeah. We had traffic ticket dates in May, didn't we? I don't think so. I think they announced that it was coming. And I don't think it was until June that we actually had traffic ticket dates. And that was like in Kitsilano Secondary School. Yeah. Well, anyway, the point was things started coming back into courthouses in at least mid-May for some criminal appearances, things like that. And Ever since then, we've all been doing all the things that we have to do. We've been wearing our masks in the courthouses. We've been going through the COVID screening when we enter the building and answering all of the questions. We've been distancing in the hallways of the courthouses. We've been telling our clients, don't bring your family members to your sensing. Um, You know, we've been trying to discourage people from attending proceedings when they want to watch, which they have a right to do because the court wants us to do that. Um, And if they're not necessary, we should try and tell them not to be there. We've been doing all of this. All of these things to make it happen, to facilitate it. Yep. And I feel like as a profession, defense lawyers and Crown Counsel have been just 
doing it with a smile. Like this is the necessary evil that we have to go through for a short time and then things will return to normal, but hopefully we'll keep some of the more convenient aspects of court proceedings that we've developed this way. But at least things will return to back having bustling courthouses full of people. And hopefully, we, and hopefully nobody's rights are compromised or nobody ends up convicted as a result of the change in the yeah. function so or the you method. Would think, you would think that since we've all adapted so well, since we took a justice system that functioned the same way it functioned in the 70s and brought it into the year 2021 overnight, basically, I mean, in yep. two months, but still, that's like overnight in the grand scheme of things. The massive systemic change that was required happened so quickly. You would think that when it came to identifying priority groups for vaccinations, the entire functioning of the justice system and the compromises to the functioning of the justice system that we have had to make would warrant the identification of some members of the court system being a priority group for vaccinations. But Paul, do you think that happened? No, I was very disappointed to see it as well. And you recall a while back, I sent out my list. I created a list of who should be vaccinated first. Yeah, country um, music defense lawyers, I know, was number one. Country music defense lawyers was on there, that's true. But, you know, I also had a, it was a very good list. I had it all sorted out. Um, you know, I came up with all the different people in order. I'm trying to find it right now on my iPad. Maybe we can refer to it. But um, I did have defense lawyers on there because we end up dealing with people who are in custody, who are in cells, who we end up having to deal with police officers. Yep. Um, let me see. My ultra revised list was healthcare workers, long-term care residents, Healthcare workers, general, EHS firefighters, and indigenous population and teachers, Dolly Parton, and she's already, of course, been vaccinated, seniors over 70, then immune compromised over 50. That didn't include me. Then immune compromised, then prisoners and correction and country music artists, except Dolly, who had already been vaccinated. Then Iggy Pop, although he's over 70. Definitely. Then age 50 to 70, then criminal lawyers. And then remaining essential service workers, airline industry, military, general population, religious weirdos, followed by conservative Republicans and Trumpists. Okay, okay. People who complained that mask rules violated their freedom somehow. Okay, all right. Your hilarious list aside, I'm being very serious right now because the thing that makes me so upset about this is it's not just defense lawyers were forgotten. It's that literally the entire court system was forgotten. Court staff, court clerks, registry staff, not on the list. Sheriffs, sheriffs, yeah, not on the list. They had correctional yeah. officers. They had law enforcement, like police, firefighters, bylaw officers, but not the BC Sheriff Service. They're not going to get vaccinated because they're not first responders. Yeah, you know, some of the sheriffs are older, you know, older than police officers. A police officer would be long since retired and the sheriffs are still working, right? Well, it's not just that. Think about what a sheriff does in the day. No, I know. I'm I'm just saying on top of all of that. 
they're screening. They're standing at the door of the courthouse, screening every single person who walks into the building. They have more contact with the public than anyone else in the building because everybody who's accessing the court has to go through the sheriffs. Then they also have contact with everybody who's being brought into the building for jail stuff. Everybody being brought from jails, everybody being taken into custody that day and transferred to jail, everybody arrested on an outstanding warrant um, for failing to show up to court. The sheriffs are dealing with all the people at the public entrances to the courthouses and at the at the custodial entrances to the courthouses. They're also interacting directly with judges and court staff. Yep. And not vaccinating sheriffs in traffic yep. court. You cannot go to traffic court without checking in with the sheriffs. And having been to traffic court almost every day in the last three, four months, many months, yep. almost every day, I have had numerous conversations with sheriffs and watched them have numerous conversations with people, including people who are angry about having to wear a mask or having to tell people to put the mask on or wear it properly. Yep. They also have to talk to all the police officers, no protection for them. Well, BC sheriffs should have been right up there as far as I'm concerned. And the people who have to do duty counsel and meet people in cells. Gro grocery, grocery store clerks are on this list and that's fine. I totally agree with that. They're interacting with people in very brief interactions with plexiglass and masks. Registry staff are doing the exact same thing and they're not on the list. Well, I think my humorous list could have been uh, adopted by the BC government and it would have been, uh, it would have been more useful in stomping down the virus. Last thing um, and say. and dealing with the potential risks in our society. I actually thought about it. I know it was a joke. I had Dolly Parton on there. Um, I didn't know Dolly would be vaccinated so quickly. But my list actually deals with the risks. And the government, I understand, is starting off with people who are more likely to die. No, they're not. By going with people who are old. Oh, yeah, sure. Nobody's arguing um, about vaccinating the old people. I'm arguing about identifying priority groups and forgetting about the entire justice system. Like Kyla I'm Lee, you just cut me off mid-sentence. Yeah, okay, okay, yeah. carry on. Happen. No, no, that's fine. We can move on, uh, I, but I'm I with you. I agree. I'm not done. What's that? I'm not done, I don't want to move on. I know you, I, I'm saying you cut me off. I don't need to continue with what I was saying. I'm happy to hear with what, what you said, so go ahead. So. I posted about this. I actually posted about it like two days ago where I suggested that the priority groups, you know, that we're talking about when we're thinking about identifying them, nobody's ever brought up defense lawyers. And like, I don't want to say anything, but uh, defense lawyers face huge amounts of risk. Well, I'm a defense lawyer, but I don't face that much risk um, because I'm not going to court. But those lawyers who are doing, who are duty counsel, who are going in and spending their whole day at the courthouse and those lawyers who have a trial, if you have a trial there. Mm -hmm. Remember how know? petrified we were the entire time we had that multi-week trial? It was awful and it affected like lots of things. It affected my ability to conduct the trial because I was spending my time worried about COVID. Well, and, and it I, was- You remember I- Poorly, it was a poorly ventilated room. There Terrible. were 
nine of packed us with people in Abbotsford mm -hmm. at the height of when the Fraser Health Authority was the worst in BC. It was absolutely dangerous, and I can't believe that we had a trial then. And it, you know, you and I put up resistance to it at the time, but it was obvious that it was going to go ahead and like. All we could have done was refuse to go and face disbarment. Yeah. And, you know, this is this is the, the thing that defense lawyers are facing every day. My friend Francis, Francis Mahan, great lawyer. I saw that she was she's tweeting about been it. In a trial. Yeah, she's had several exposures just in the course of this one trial where she hasn't, um, you know, where the trial's been derailed. This trial should have been over months ago. But it keeps getting adjourned because of these multiple exposures that she's been faced with, all in the courthouse, not in her social life, in the courtroom where she is having this trial. So every single defense lawyer that's out there running trials, even if it's in traffic court, like I know I'm, you know, just a driving lawyer and I go to traffic court and I do, do drunk driving trials and drive all prohibited trials and it's not glamorous, but being in that room is taking your life into your hands. And Seriously, you don't think this is glamorous? Kyla, I've been saying for years that this is glamorous. Where's the glamour in defending a speeding ticket? I'm not in it for the glamour. I'm in it for the fun. Hmm. I'm in it for the glamour. You think there's glamour? Um, <laughs> absolutely. You, gotta think, you think there's a traffic court about traffic court lawyers? Traffic court lawyer. <laughs> Hey, can I have an RO? Duh, duh, duh. What will the officer say? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Cut to commercial. Cliffhanger. Yeah. You yes. have no note of which laser device you were using, do you, officer? Duh, duh, duh. Cut to commercial. Oh, on traffic uh, No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember because it's the only one I use. It's not glamorous. It's fun. It's fine. But it's still single time I walk into that building, I have to speak to an officer and I have to I hear I hear you. I hear you, Kyla. And I just like the government is making decisions. And I don't agree with all the decisions. And some of these things are revised. And look at how many revisions we've had just in the timeline. So my father was supposed to be able to book his appointment as of next Monday. We were able to book it yesterday because they'd upped the timeline. Then we find out today that the Americans are giving us another two and a half million uh, AstraZeneca um, doses of vaccine because it still hasn't been approved in the States and they've got it there. They're giving us some or one and a half million and they're giving two and a half to the Mex to Mexico or something like that. So, I mean, it's coming fast. All that wall stuff for the last four years. Here's some AstraZeneca vaccine. Exactly. Well, they, they are trying to rebuild some of those those burnt bridges. There's no doubt about it. But the um, the uh, I, I looked at it and I looked where I am on the list and I'm actually quite a ways down the line. So I'm 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 wishing I had some fake ID. I'm um, I'm the same place you are on the list, because when you add my indigenous plus 15, I get to your age. Yes. Um, and you think I could be up on the list for something, you know, I can find a few reasons where I could persuade myself that I should be up on the list. I'm just going to go with like crazy hairstyles from now on. But I still think uh, country music artists 
um, should have been uh, should have been further up. Um, but let's move on to the next topic. I agree with you. I'm upset. And ever since you started pointing out now a few years ago how defense lawyers are generally treated, um, particularly in BC, I didn't find this in Alberta. When I go to Alberta, it's um, a, a different experience. It's not like you, you know, in BC, it feels like the Crown has the home team advantage. Um, it feels like the prosecutors in front of that same judge day after day after day and and they're so friendly that it makes you uncomfortable or you know sometimes clients complain about it although I never really found the judges to be that different with me although there's been a few notable exceptions um, I, I never found it quite to the same extreme in Alberta mm-hmm uh, but as you pointed it out to me, I mean, this has been my experience as 20 whatever years in BC. And, you know, I just became accustomed to the fact that we're second class citizens uh, in there. And you brought it to the fore. And I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Let's move well, on. You're welcome. I'm not going to give up the quest until defense counsel are truly equal. Well, in, in when we have parking spots, and, and unfortunately, that is always the issue. Parking, parking. spots private washrooms, separate entrances. There's so much, so many. It'd be, it'd, it'd be nice. Aggressions. It'd be nice to have like a string quartet in the barrister's lounge every once in a while. You know, okay, I, I, I know you want to move on from this topic, but I'm going to tell you about one, one tiny little thing in the grand scope of things, but that made me so angry recently. And that was when I went to the Kelowna courthouse. Now, ordinarily, I, you know, don't go to Kelowna, I would appear by phone, but I had a trial there, so I had to go. And when I checked in, right before I walked into the building, three police officers walked into the building, walked right past the COVID screening without a word, without being questioned, nothing. Walked right into the building right upstairs. And when I got to the COVID screening, I said to the sheriff, why weren't they asked any screening questions? And he said, well, they're police officers. And I said, uh-huh police can get COVID too. And he said, well, they're not going to come in the building if they were sick. And that to me, like, that's exactly the problem. There I am as defense counsel, an officer of the court. I also would not go in the building if I were sick. And yet I'm treated like I might be some nasty contagious thing, but a police officer isn't because he's a police officer. And for a court, to be applying, and I get it's through the sheriffs, but still for a court to be applying that standard, it sends the message to the public that the police are to be more trusted than defense counsel. Or the dentist who comes in, or the store clerk who comes in, or anybody else who's coming in. Yeah. You know, the, the police officers aren't subject to any of those questions. Um, but, you know, but like, that, that, you know, that may be a personal incorrect decision by that sheriff they, they should be asking every police officer and i did see at the start of the pandemic police officers being questioned but questioned. my concern with it I'm, i mean i, I yes you you hate the hypocrisy and so do i but i actually don't think that police officers are a safer bunch and they, are, they should be subject to frankly greater scrutiny more questions than the average person because a couple of reasons one they are in touch with lots of people and they have to touch people 
where the rest of us can stay distant. If they're able to be a priority group because of all those risks, then they should be subject to greater scrutiny for that same reason. Exactly. And the other thing is early in the pandemic, and maybe it's not so much now, but if you went on to some Facebook pages for police officers, uh, you start looking for thin blue line discussions, you would find that many police officers were COVID deniers or denied the efficacy of face masks or felt that it was blown up. Mm-hmm. Um, and were Trump sympathizers. So I recently had to deal with a police officer for like half an hour in close contact in a courthouse in BC who did not put his mask over his nose the entire time. I think we discussed this on the podcast. And I was mad I had to tweet about it because yeah. yeah. Anyway. We have other driving things to talk about though. Yes. Well he's getting into traffic court and COVID. This actually leads into our discussion of traffic court and COVID because somebody recently in um, Kamloops brought an application for a judicial stay of their traffic ticket based on delay. And the history of this case is really interesting. The case is Regina and Bar Yar, 2021 BCPC 40 for anyone on Canley who wants to follow along. Um, And essentially what happened was this guy got his traffic ticket in January, 2019. He disputed it, he hired a lawyer, and he had a hearing date in October, 2019. Normal sort of timeframe, nine months for a court date. It's totally, you know, relatively (laughs) reasonable. Um, And the court taking place 13 months after the date the ticket was issued. Usually that's a fine timeframe for a traffic ticket. October 17th rolls around and the um, the lawyer for Mr. Barriar asks for disclosure, doesn't get it in time for the court date. So he applies to adjourn and the tickets adjourned and it's noted that it's the crown, a crown adjournment because crown had not complied with the disclosure request. Now I pause here because there's a very interesting passage from Judge Frame about what happened with respect to this disclosure request. So it's paragraph five of the judgment um, and the court uh, says, um, sets out sort of the request for disclosure. And it says, um, the letter specifies the disclosure sought. It does not appear that Mr. Thorstenson received any response to this request for disclosure before the initial trial date, nor did he follow through with any further requests for that disclosure. He should not have to do so, having made the request. However, it may have improved the chances of receiving the disclosure before trial. So the court, first of all, says, you make the request, you don't have to follow up. That's on the Crown at that point to get it to you. Yeah, it might make it faster if you did, but Crown still bears the burden of providing the disclosure. Then she says, there also appears to be no process in place for making disclosure once a dispute notice is filed. Perhaps it is the simplicity of these trials, but that seems to be a bit dysfunctional. Disclosure on a disputed ticket should be made once the dispute is filed to avoid these very delays while affording an opportunity to disputants to properly prepare for trial. Yeah, that's a, 
I wonder if anybody else will read it. I found it when you were, while you were uh, setting that out. That is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've never really questioned it in BC. I've never really thought about it. So in BC, you file your traffic ticket in dispute. Uh, and you get a trial date and you can write to the police officer to request disclosure, or you can just show up at traffic court and the police officer is not going to have a copy for you. You can look at the disclosure. Some police officers seem to think that you can't, but you can usually explain to them why you can, and you can request it and they can go down to the registry and make a copy. But why the heck don't you just get a copy when you file a thing in dispute? But mm-hmm. You know, that's a lot of work, right? It's a lot of work if you need to send. And you and I don't ask for disclosure in most of those cases, mm-hmm. not because we, you know, it's a pain and not because, you know, for whatever, it's just that you and I don't need them. Well, I don't need the disclosure. For me, it's strategic. If I, I figure, you know, the disclosure on a speeding ticket is going to be one or two pages of notes. I know what to do with every laser and radar device used. It's not, it doesn't, massively change my approach i know what to look for there's only a couple things that are extremely important to have in the notes and if i start requesting disclosure my view is that the police officer is going to go oh, kyla lee's requesting disclosure oh my this god it's kyla lee she's fighting this ticket i better read this thing over over and yeah, over the night before yeah yeah i don't i don't want them to do that no i know i just i take my ipad and i take a photograph of it yeah. And that's all I need. I mean, you know, I've done lots of speeding ticket trials. I don't need more than that most and of the time. You, can you just pop down to the registry and make a copy for me? Cool, thanks. Yeah, I find my iPads better. Now that I'm using my iPad for that, yeah. I just take a good photo and I can I can highlight everything I need. I've got it right there. Yeah, but you can't do the dramatic flourish of pages. That's true. <laughs> well, no, because I have the no, I can do it because I have the manual for every for every uh, radar and laser device and all of their training manuals with me at all times. Anytime I'm running a speeding trial. Yeah. Anyway, so. interesting. <laughs> I wonder. I wonder if we'll be seeing some sort of change where police officers also have to submit their notes because now we have e-ticketing and they write their notes along with the ticket, so it would be easy for them to submit it, and then the applicant gets a copy of the notes as soon as they dispute the ticket. It would be perhaps problematic because all those cases where the officer, oh, I can't find the ticket, I can't find my notes, and withdraws it, those are going to fall by the wayside. But at the same time, adjournments required requiring disclosure will also fall by the wayside. So I remember years ago, there was a lawyer who I saw in court who I knew, and I like this lawyer, would show up and uh, to traffic court not have the disclosure because didn't request it and then stand in court and say, well, I don't have the disclosure. I need to adjourn it. And the JJP, the judicial, what are they called now? I don't want to get this wrong because I've been recently. Judicial justice. The judicial justice. Okay. I was on the right track. The judicial justice, the just the formerly the justice of the peace back then uh, would say, well, did you ask for disclosure? And the lawyer would say, well, no. And then they'd sort of scratch their head and go, okay, well, I'm going to return it. <laughs> so you could get the disclosure. Um, and what can uh, I do? What, what are you going to do? So the, um, and that was, 
you know, in those circumstances, it was very strange to you and me because you and I have never tried to adjourn something for the sake of a delay. I've never tried to create a delay. Yeah. Um, there's been delays, but I've never tried to create a delay, but then it was, you know, okay, now it's been adjourned. Well, there was no disclosure. Therefore there's a delay. I How have, long does it take to get it back on? Like I have adjourned on disclosure issues where the officer's like, Oh, I have a video and I'm going to play it. And they can't show it to me in the hallway because they don't yeah. have to play it. Yeah, that, that's okay. very different. Very that's different. Okay. You know, right. there's so, times that you show up and a police officer's got a video or they've got something that's really unanticipated. Um, but so like these are these are scheduled as trial dates without any disclosure dates beforehand. So it does make sense so in circum to, certain circumstances. Go ahead. Back to Mr. Barriar's case. So he doesn't get his disclosure. It gets adjourned for him to get disclosure with a notation of Crown's fault, uh, <laughs> Crown delay. And then he gets another notice with his hearing date changed to May 5th. Mm -hmm. And of course, we all know what happened then, May 5th, 2020. The hearing got canceled because of the pandemic. Um, in the meantime, he gets the disclosure. And then there's a new notice on June 25th sent to Mr. Barriar saying, okay, now you have a court date of July 25th. Um, and that date, Despite the fact that Mr. Barrier had a lawyer, Mr. Thorstensen, the court made no attempts to contact Mr. Thorstensen to find out his schedule to book the date with his availability. So paragraph 10 of the- so They just booked it. Yeah. yeah they, they said, I'm not sure why that would be, but it was just set. <laughs> Well, they um, do that, but they don't do it with many lawyers. I mean, with us, they usually contact us because we have so many and they know it. Yeah. But the traffic ticket center in Vancouver that does most of the scheduling usually just sends you the traffic ticket date and you have to figure it out or contact them to change it. You know, on those pa post-pandemic dates, we did have a lot of... We, we had a lot of conflicted dates because we were just assigned them and they didn't contact us. That's they, true. They contacted us for a lot of them but they didn't contact us for all of them. And there were ones where we were retained in the meantime, where the person had had a date that had canceled and then we'd been hired and we'd sent a letter saying, now we're retained, contact us. And they didn't. And it caused a bunch of problems. I mean, it's all been sorted out, but there was obviously some, some dysfunction as a result of the pandemic, which you can expect. It was so a lot of, it was a lot of hours of, of labor in the office that it ended up costing us, yes. which we don't pass on those cost to the client nope. um, and caused us to have to deal with misery <laughs> which is why we're getting all those letters right now with all of those dates every day oh dates um so then the date uh prior to this new date there's a uh, notice of constitutional question that's filed and that's how it ends up in front of Judge Frame in BC Provincial Court. Essentially arguing unreasonable delay. Now, if you look at the time frame between when the matter was ultimately set and the time frame when it was like originally occurred, like the, the length of time is well above Jordan. But then you subtract and the court's like, obviously we su subtract all of the COVID time because... Every single case on that has consistently held 
that it's exceptional circumstances. Yeah. He gets down to 17 months and 22 days. Which- well, that's fascinating because, of course, the COVID timeline is 18 months. The, the COVID timeline's not 18 months. The Jordan timeline's 18 months. I'm sorry, the Jor- Jordan timeline. Well, you know, we're recording this at 8.52 and I'm tired. The Jordan timeline is, uh, and I'm looking at the word Jordan in the case, is is eight, is eighteen months. Yeah, um, but but that was like that was the that was the Supreme Court of Canada setting an ultimate roof, and there could be circumstances where it would be less than that. Yes, but it was meant to be like it not it's not going beyond that unless you could clearly point at defense counsel for a portion of it. Well, the, the, whole, the whole reason that's important here is because then the burden shifted to Mr. Barriar to show that this was a case where the delay violated his rights. The burden is on the crown for anything 18 months and up. The burden is on to show that it was, you know, exceptional circumstances or whatever. Under yeah, fair that, enough. It's on Mr. Barriar to show that it was still unreasonable delay that warrants a stay of proceedings. And Judge Frame says this. While I do not have evidence of what a reasonable amount of time is for a traffic ticket to come to court, it is clear on the evidence before me that a request for disclosure was made on November 4th, 2019. By reason only of the failure to make that disclosure, the original trial date of February 21st, 2020 could not proceed. This is a delay that falls entirely at the feet of the Crown. The prejudice to Mr. Barriar extends beyond that of a typical traffic ticket. And this part fascinates me. This is the best part of the judgment in my view. I mean, the disclosure thing's great, but this is the best part. Well, it is certainly his obligation to protect the status of his license through his driving behavior. The evidence is that an accumulation of points against his license can ultimately result to penalties to his employer and a loss of employment to him. This threat has weighed on him since the traffic ticket was issued and he filed his dispute notice. So she says that the prejudice to him is because he's going to get points and he's going to lose his license and his job. And that is what makes the delay unreasonable in his case. Gee, that's really good. It's not what I expected from her. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, I don't know. I've never appeared in front of her, but it's not something I would expect the court to say. I love it. And she says, oh, no, I mean, it's like, I'm sorry. It's, I mean, it's the court. The court is, you know, this is this is fascinating and makes sense. And this is the evidence before the court and the courts come to this conclusion. Yeah, and she says the failure to make disclosure, the delay in ultimately making disclosure, the absence of a booking system that takes into account counsel's calendar and the confusion over the issuance of notices of hearing conspired to create these delays. So literally anybody who made a disclosure request right now, who's at risk of losing their job because they're gonna lose their license, if they're under the 18 month ceiling and there was one adjournment because of unmet disclosure, they might have a legitimate Jordan argument. Wow, Kyla, this is news. This is a fascinating case for that reason. It is fascinating. Yeah, so I was super excited to read this. Well, this is the court protecting somebody's, uh, you know, protecting our charter rights. I should say and this is the interplay of this is the interplay of the obligation of disclosure and the obligation to ensure a, uh, a timely trial. And I'm, I'm trying to give a shout out to Jody in our office who found the case and yeah. to Zach 
who told me about it. Yeah, well, that's great. Thanks, Jody and Zach. Um, the A-team. This is great. Yeah, the A-team. Um, the A-team for the A-team. Um, yeah, no, this is very interesting. There's good comments on here by this provincial court judge. Likey. Yeah. All right. Me Moving too. on to other things that me likey. Uh, really interesting decision in the driving law personal injury context. Um, is the debate about whether or not cyclists should be licensed and insured sort of resurfaced last week. And then... Uh, <laughs> I'm not going you, there. You, you just... You, you, did you tweet this? This judgment? Yeah. Did, yes. Yeah. Okay. So this is the one that I was thinking of. So you tweet a judgment and yep. all you tweeted was like the bare bones facts of the judgment. No... Cyclist. No opinion from you or anything on it. Nope. And I just noticed, I didn't engage until the next day. I noticed you were attacked by cyclists. Okay. They are a passionate bunch. They, and they take it very personally. If you say that the court <laughs> made a ruling that says this, apparently that's a personal attack on cyclists because I need to think about how I say things and how it might affect their feelings. Because the way I word it might be microaggression against people who make a choice to ride a bicycle. Yep. So be careful out there, Kyla, as yeah. you as you speak of cycling. I literally had to like write a tweet. <clears throat> like, I'm not going to engage with you people anymore because all you do is call me names. Like I was called amoral. I was called unethical. Somebody said that I only know about DUI and don't know anything about driving law. And I don't know, but this is like three years of this podcast this month. Yeah. And um, I don't know, nine or 10 years that you've been doing this. And nine nine like, years practicing law. Yep. Sort of the leading voice on driving law in Canada. <laughs> it's One of the top 25 most influential lawyers in Canada because of my impact on driving. It's fine. It's fine. The, more, the Motor Vehicle Act's been changed more in the last eight years because of you than because of any other reason. I wrote two books. It's fine. Uh, anyway, that, that was that was hilarious. Yeah. Um, I'm always reluctant to talk about anything cycling because I get attacked by the cycling lobby too. And I mean, I'm a cyclist. I it was, I wrote a tweet tonight just discussing how I used to ride my bike at minus thirty in Edmonton to yeah. university. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was a I was extreme cyclist for a long time, and I'm still a you know believer. A believer, yeah. Anywho. Um, anyway, this judgment <laughs> was interesting because one thing that cyclists do a lot that is always concerned me as a driver for their safety has been you know when you're like there are lines of cars stopped at a light and the cyclist will come up on the right and pass all of those cars getting to the front at the intersection yeah that's unlawful and there's good reason I... for it. it's dangerous and that's exactly what the cyclist did in this case so mr coles who sued bc transit and a poor bus driver, Miss Graham, who was just driving the bus, she's stopped in a lane, she's unloading passengers, she turns her signal light on left to indicate that the unloading is done and that she's going to proceed away from the curb 
and down the road. And Mr. Cole looks at the signal light that's on. He's coming rapidly down a hill at the same speed as cars. And he figures, oh, you know what? That bus is gonna change lanes. So I'm just gonna pass it on the right. But he was wrong. It did not change lanes. And yep. he ran into the back of the bus and hurt himself. Based on his decisions, he hit the back of the bus, fell off his bicycle, broke his elbow. Bus driver, of course, you're in a big bus. Bicycle hits the back of the bus. You don't know anything about it. You don't hear it. You don't see it. You don't feel it. So she just keeps going. So he claims that she was wrong to have left the scene of an accident that she didn't know occurred and that she somehow drove in a way that was not having due regard to to her obligations to him passing her unlawfully on the right and the court actually throws out his case entirely doesn't give him a penny because he violated the motor vehicle act by passing on the right as you are not allowed to do yep even and on a bike and I, you know, I, I just basically he just rear-ended her. Yeah, he literally like tried to pass her, failed, rear-ended her, and then said, "It's your fault." You know, and if he were in a car, if a car had done that and gone, oh, you know what? I think they're going to change lanes, so I'm not going to slow down because the bus will just be out of my way and ran into the back of the bus. We all know who would be at fault. So I don't know why the cyclist in this case, Mr. Cole, thought that things would be different. I will tell you the reason. Uh, the reason is that there is a belief in the cycling community that they, cyclists are more moral than people in vehicles and that people in uh, cars and trucks should just get out of their way because they are more vulnerable and more moral. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be the fundamental issue at hand. And I will tell you when I get on my bike, I have to fight the urge to persuade myself that I am entitled to run that stop sign. I still stop at stop signs on my bike, Thank you. but you know, I'm maybe the only person who does because I've never seen any other cyclist who comes to a full stop at a stop sign. Uh, and that is again, the belief that, you know, they are somehow more moral and more, and more vulnerable and therefore should be and expending energy in by way of muscle power and therefore should be entitled to have different rules customs among bicycles instead of the rules of the road and that is a problem um, and we're heading into summertime and i'm going to get back on my bike i'm not riding my bike in the middle of winter anymore i did that for years and years and years um, but uh, we're heading back into summertime and uh, people have to keep that in mind when they're cycling. But then there's also the people who get in their cars, right? Mm -hmm. And they forget that they do things to people they would never do if they were walking down the street. They cut them off. They won't let them in. You know, they don't slow down for somebody else. They tighten up the space to make sure somebody can't change lanes. All of those things that they would never do if they were walking down the road. Um, so it's uh you know it's a it's a different issue it's a different if it's a different mindset when you're riding your bike it's a different mindset when you're driving your car but uh if you rear end a bus i'm sorry <laughs> it, it hurts 
but you're not entitled to uh, damages, certainly, because you can't pass the bus. But of course, the issue I think that the people who were attacking you on Twitter were trying to focus on is how do you pass a bus? You wait for the bus to be in its lane, then you pass it on the left, like you would pass yeah. any other bus. As exactly. And that's really dangerous too. So imagine this now. You're on a bike and you're just behind the bus and you've got to stay behind the bus until it's safe to pass. And you're on a bike and you can't pass it quickly. And the bus is going to stop and it's going to stop at the next for the next person. And then you've got to basically go out into the almost left lane in order to circle around the bus. And the bus is a big wall beside you. Mm -hmm. And then you've got, you know, somebody in their Range Rover or their truck or whatever, also trying to basically go around you because they won't slow down for you because you're a bike and they're looking at you and they think your bike you shouldn't be in this left-hand lane you should you know wait for the bus um so i mean there's a lot of drivers who are not having any respect for cyclists on the road cyclists are entitled to be on the lane just like anybody else well they um, stay as far right as practicable unless they're passing but yes and that's the thing. And how far right can you stay when the bus pulls over to stop for somebody? Um, you know, I, I remember almost being driven into a mirror of a parked vehicle by somebody in their truck pulling a trailer with a uh, with a, a bobcat on the back, you know, because the width of that trailer is wider than the truck. Mm -hmm. So it's the danger. And so I, you know, I, I sympathize with the cyclists, but you know, you know unless what? the government, hang on, please let me finish. Unless the government is going to come along and write some different rules of the road for cyclists, and they, there are some, you got to expect that you're just going to be bound by the Motor Vehicle Act. Well, now let me tell you. Go ahead. Let me I was just going to say the Motor Vehicle Act is worth a read if you haven't read it. Uh, you know, you read it every six or eight months. I've read it a few times over the course of my career. Uh, the Motor Vehicle Act's a good read. Let me tell you why I disagree with you that I feel any sympathy for cyclists who have to get stuck waiting behind a bus and, and you know, waiting for the bus to make it stops and unload people. If you're in a car, it's that same situation. You get stuck behind the bus, you're in the lane behind the bus, you have to wait until you can change lanes into the other lane or, you know, a, an appropriate time to go into the oncoming lane lawfully and pass the bus. You have that same obligation. You take those same risks. Your visibility might be better. It might be worse because you're in a car. You're not able to get as close. You're not able to, to you've got, you know, things obstructing your vision and the structure of the car. It's the same thing that cars have to deal with. To me, it's this, it's this idea that cyclists have that somehow because they're on a bicycle, they have a license to get ahead of other traffic when it's convenient for them to do so. And I don't think that there's anything in the Motor Vehicle Act or in any case law that suggests that cyclists get to have a more advantageous position in traffic because they're on a bicycle. That's just- No, I, 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 I hear you there, but just imagine you're a cyclist and you're behind the bus and you think, you know what? Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pass the bus to stop now. There's gonna be people unloading and loading. I'm gonna pass this bus. And there's, you know, the cars are a block behind. 
And so you go to pass that bus and you're riding, you're pedaling your ass off and you're halfway past that bus. And that car that's coming up behind is like speeding up and it's about to be tight. And next thing you know, the bus is deciding to pull out. Mm -hmm. And that's when you basically end up underneath the bus and dead. And so that is the scenario that I think every cyclist is contemplating when they're looking at this and they're getting upset about the decision because they can see how this plays out. When you're on a bike, you can't accelerate the same way as a car. You can't pass the same way. You, you have to, you know, and, and if you set out to pass and you're in a car, you're likely to survive if the bus decides to signal to continue to drive. But when you're on a bike, all of a sudden you're crushed in between a bus and whatever vehicle is in that next lane over. And so it seems to me that, you know, your obligation should be spelled out more clearly. Maybe you just have to stay behind the bus. I mean, for me, I'd usually jump up on the sidewalk, go swinging to pass the sidewalk, flying through some old people, not grab their groceries and continue on. But, you know, it, 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 it is fundamentally dangerous for someone to have to pass a bus on a bike and you're sitting there making these decisions as you're driving thinking to yourself okay well now's the time and it seems safe yeah but you're halfway through it and it's not halfway through it that you're going to get your bumper scratched it's halfway through it that you end or end up dead underneath the uh, wheels of a bus yeah i mean i i i disagree with you you and i disagree on this but the, you will agree, though, that the wheels of the bus go round and round. Yes. And I will also agree that Wrigley's giving me the bark to tell me that it's time for the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. Having not talked to you, like, in three days, because we've been so busy, I have no idea who it is, so I'm looking forward to it. Oh, you're going to love this one. This is like a stroke of genius gone wrong. So a man in Texas really wants to get a BMW, but he does not have enough money to buy a BMW. So yeah. in order to get the BMW that he wants, he does what any reasonable person would do. He goes down to the BMW dealership. He says, I would like to buy this BMW. I would like to borrow it for a short period of time to see how it works, to see if it's gonna work for me, and then I'll bring it back. And little known fact, but luxury car retailers will usually do that. They will loan you their fancy cars so that you can figure out whether or not you wanna buy them. Um, I mean, I think you have to probably like make them think that you're enough to afford it, but. You leave your driver's license and there might be some other things that you do. Yeah. So he takes a BMW from the dealership and promptly drives it to the bank to rob the bank so he can pay for it. To buy the BMW. Yes, yes. He leaves Lubbock, Texas in the BMW, drives to Woolworth, Texas, puts a fast food paper bag over his head, walks into the bank, places a note on the teller counter saying, this is a fucking robbery. Play with me and die. 
I want $10,000 and 50 and $100 bills. Now you got one minute or I will kill you. Very. Oh, that's like, pretty mean. That's a little dramatic. But 10 grand little... doesn't get you a BMW anyway. I mean, that's just the deposit, right? So he wants. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So he brings out a gun and warns them and steals. They give him <laughs> uh, several thousand dollars, including yeah. bills recorded serial numbers 15 yeah. minutes after this bank robbery robbery he goes straight back to the dealership waves around the stolen cash pays three thousand dollars as a down payment for his bmw finances the rest and then gets gets arrested shouldn't there be some <laughs> sort of recognition here for his inventiveness and creativity. Point I mean, this is resourcefulness, taking the BMW out, using the car that's not connected to you to commit the bank robbery, coming back with cash to actually purchase it. I mean, he could have just driven away in the car, partied in the car, but he comes yep. back. I mean, this is like enterprising. It's so weird though. It's like, you're gonna steal and they give you a car and you don't steal the car, you, you use it to rob a bank and then go he back. Should have, he should have gone back car. and bought one in a different color. Yeah. Because well, they would have figured it out when they saw that BMW later on. <laughs> it's so silly. Stop wriggling. It's so I silly. don't know. I, I, I just think this, this, is, this is inventive and I think he's discovered something new and I'm, I'm disappointed that, uh, that he didn't get caught. I think he should be recognized for his innovation. Okay. Well, anyway, I thought he was the perfect ridiculous driver of the week. Don't rob a bank. It's <laughs> not. It's not inventive. Don't and borrow a car to rob a bank to get the money the, to pay for since, the car. <laughs> since the seventies, since the seventies, it's uh, it's not been a successful way to uh, to to get away with a crime. No, I once tried to withdraw like more than ten thousand dollars in cash at a bank um to, i had to pay for something for you that was for me that was going yeah. to go buy a, a car buy a for me car. and yeah. they were like i don't even know if we have that much cash so think about that next time you think about robbing a bank they can't even give you money that you're legitimately withdrawing in cash yeah i had to go take out more than ten thousand dollars cash for a purchase and um, they didn't have it in that bank i had to go to two banks yeah. So banks don't keep that kind of money anymore. If you uh, need $10,000 as a deposit for a BMW, forget it. Don't rob the bank. Yeah. You know, don't just uh, just ask your parents yeah. and I'm sure they'll give you the money. Just tell them what you need it for. I really need a BMW. <laughs> okay, uh, I understand. Back in my day, I had a Plymouth. Okay. Well, Thanks, that's, Kyla. That's I enjoyed the podcast. I like that ridiculous driver of the week. And uh, the cyclists out there who are listening to the podcast, it's uh, at Kyla, at IRP Lawyer on Twitter. Don't at me. <laughs> don't at Kyla. Don't, don't talk to me about cycling stuff. Uh, this is my podcast. You don't like it, turn it off. Well, if you don't <laughs> like the Motor Vehicle Act then uh, write some letters to, uh, to the government. Write some to the opposition. Maybe the BC Liberals will get on board. You know, they created a lot of the, uh, they, create, they paid for a lot of the cycling 
roads. Hey, you know what? I have a cycling development to point out. I was driving down um, King Edward, uh, West King Edward in Vancouver the other day. First time ever I saw two cyclists using the cycling path that the city put in about seven years ago. Okay. I've, I'd only ever seen one person in the, uh, in the seven years I've been driving down that road. So now it's up to two. That's double. Right. That's double. This is a terrible story. If you need to reach us, find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com or give us a call at 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for an exciting episode of Driving Law in which Paul won't tell stories about people he saw on bikes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sounds good.